Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband Josh wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want, we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. They need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry, and then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way, and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church, exactly. knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. I'm going to be back to heckle him. <laughs> Not really. To pray for him. <laughs> That's better, right? <laughs> it's true. Um, well, let me say, first of all, as I try to get this in my back pocket, um, I'm really, I, honestly, honestly, this doesn't hold my stuff. <clears throat> I have some magazines here, and these are props for my message. Thank you. Um, anyway, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I've gotten to know Darren over the last months, and, uh, and I'm getting to know Alex a little bit. And I want to tell you guys, you have one of the greatest, best, and, and this, you know, broadens out to the rest of the staff, but I'm going to say it about Darren, one of the greatest preachers in the country right here. You do, really. And, I mean, he didn't, he, he didn't ask me to say this or anything, but 
you know, and, and here he is in his 20s. And uh, there's a maturity and a passion and a freedom in Darren that is really, really remarkable. And I, I know that God's called you together to uh, be a part of his, uh, his purpose for Long Beach and uh, to uh, not just to support, you know, the, the staff here, but to be uh, the pastors of this city in a lot of different ways. Um, I was born in Long Beach. The hospital that I was born in, Seaside Hospital, has been torn down. I was born and they tore the hospital down. Not quite. (laughs) Anyway, and uh, my uncle uh, was president of Farmers and Merchants Bank, and then my cousin became president. And it's it's kind of a family institution here in Long Beach, um, which makes me think, maybe I could get a loan. Um, anyway, uh, so I, I feel it's amazing to me, and I lived the first part of my life here in Long Beach. It's, it's amazing to have the privilege of preaching here. I've never preached in Long Beach before, and to have this opportunity, which uh, Darren has given to me, is really very, very special. So anyway, if you've got a Bible, yeah, pull out your uh, phones and turn to your Bible. And uh, we're going to, I want to read just a little bit from um, 1 Kings chapter 18. And uh, uh, I'm going to read um, uh, I'm going to read starting at verse uh, yeah, here we go. Verse 16, 17. I have eye problems. I need my glasses, and I didn't bring them. Okay. Anyway, um, yeah, verse 16. So Obadiah, he's running the the king's palace, okay? And the king is Ahab. Uh, He's a notoriously bad king. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, some of the people... uh, all over, from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and, being, uh, and bring the 450 prophets of Baal <clears throat> and the 400 prophets of Ashereth who sit at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout the, all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people of, and said, How long will you Waver between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Now, this is the kind of the, the lead into one of the most dramatic moments in the Old Testament. And that is Elijah now is going to confront these prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And uh, I'll say a bit about uh, that event as we go along uh, today. But uh, uh, this, uh, 
this kind of, it's, it's really a call. It's a call and a command. Uh, choose you this day whom you will serve. If the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, if he's God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. There's the alternative which Elijah presents to Israel at this very dramatic moment. And then a lot happens after that. But that, that uh, command, call, invitation, confrontation, that's for you and me. And we have to make, and in ways we have to make it again and again, we have to make the decision, who are we serving? Who are we going to serve? And uh, we want to kind of build this out this morning to talk about it. Now, um, again, the Old Testament, and, and really into the New as well, is continually talking about the danger and the foolishness and also the power and the seductiveness of idolatry. And this is a major battle. The living God against all the false gods of the land, and this uh, can be summarized by the Baals. Uh, that's the battle that's raging. Yeah. Okay. This we're going to get to this point in just a minute. This is. And just no, no. Put, you can put it back up. <laughs> really. Thank you. Um, so, so this is this is the battle between the living God and the idols, and. For a lot of us, we think, well, you know, idolatry isn't a problem for us today. I mean, you don't see temples with idols uh, around Long Beach or Seal or wherever you come from. Um, however, it is a battle, and you and I are in it. And the best way to kind of bring it into our world is to talk about, about idolatry as addiction. Gerald May has written a great book. Addiction and Grace, and he says in this book, talking about addiction, he says we are all addicts in every sense of the word. And he says the neurological, psychological, and spiritual dynamics of addiction are actively at work in each of us. And May distinguishes between repression, which is kind of Freud's understanding of, of uh, psychological and emotional sickness, and and and. Uh, Addiction. Addiction is not repression. It's attachment. It's an active attachment to some person or some process or some substance that then begins to control us. And uh, again, I, 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 I'm not going to lay all this out for you this morning, but May says we are all addicts in every sense of the word. And if worshiping an idol puts you into that kind of attachment bondage, then we are all idolaters in every sense of the word. And uh, you're an addict. And you say, oh, no, not me, Don. Well, the first symptom of addiction is denial. So I want you to repeat now. I, I don't want to make you repeat after me. Yes, Don, I am an addict. And again, uh, you know, some of us here, maybe many of us have have struggled with um, addiction to substances, alcohol uh, addiction, if you will, become alcoholics or uh, all kinds of other chemicals, and and that's one whole pathway into losing your freedom and being controlled by something outside of yourself and trying to medicate the deep emptiness and pain inside by some chemical that changes your brain chemistry for a bit, 
but you know you can go up or you can go down but you're going to go off and once you go off of it then you have to have more and the the reality of chemical addiction is that you reach tolerance and then you have to have more of the substance that you're using to medicate the pain to fill the emptiness or to feel good and happy party time whatever it may be in your life so First of all, then there's the whole issue of chemicals and then processes like gambling, uh, like uh, working out. What? Yeah, you know, you can get high on your endorphins. And if you uh, reach that point and you're really addicted to your endorphins. And by the way, if you want to work on a good addiction, this is not a bad one (laughs) because it's good to be healthy, you know, and, and to work at that. But again, this can become compulsive in your life and there are all kinds of processes that you can become addicted to and then the third which is the issue in my life personally and that is to become addicted to people it's called codependence within the kind of alcohol uh, um, alcohol uh, as a disease model and addictive relationships to people means that you are uh, in bondage to them you know and you can call it love you can call it all kinds of words, but if, if, if somebody is controlling your life, or if you don't know who you are outside of a relationship with someone, you've moved within the range of, of being addicted, being in an addictive relationship. So when Gerald May says that we are all addicts in every sense of the word, he, um, he's not kidding, and that's something that I've had to deal with in my life, it's really easy to be in the, in the ministry, you know, quote-unquote, to be a pastor and get addicted to your church and your people, especially people who have something to give, whether it's money or, or talent or whatever it may be, you know. And, uh, and, and then it's very, very easy to become codependent to them, namely, I need you to tell me who I am, to make me look good, uh, to help me build the church. And so th- th- that's where the shift easily takes place. Rather than I need you, Lord, I need, you know, this person or these people. And uh, suddenly I then fall into this codependent bondage. And that's something that I've had to battle through. And it's always there kind of lurking to uh, capture me again. Um, so now we'll go to uh, talking about idolatry. Since I, uh, I, 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 uh, haven't really made the case, but addiction is idolatry. It's something that you are giving yourself to, that you're attached to, uh, that you're finding meaning uh, and uh, um, you know uh, some uh, some purpose in your life in that addictive substance or relationship or process, and it's idolatry. In other words, idolatry is worshiping something other than the living and true God, and whatever that something may family. Uh, you know, friends, job, um, chemicals, relationships, whatever. Um, this is uh, <clears throat> this, this is uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright's analysis of idolatry. And we go back to the first slide, okay? An idol is a perversion of a good thing. For example, um, medication is a really good thing. But if you abuse medication or you use chemicals and become dependent upon them in a way that's really damaging to yourself, then that's a perversion. Sex is a good thing. 
Believe it or not, as a matter of fact, Darren, I think, is going to do a whole series on sex this fall. I hope I haven't kind of blown his cover on that. But uh, sex is a good thing. It's, God has created us as sexual beings. Uh, and, uh, and this is rooted right in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis. But the perversion of our sexuality uh, can become a very bad thing. Government is a good thing. Uh, believing in, uh, b- being grateful for the nation that God has given to us, but patriotism can become a very bad thing when it starts controlling our lives. And all we have to do is go back to uh, uh, the 30s of the last century and look at Nazi Germany as an example of that. So a good thing perverted becomes an idol. Number two, it makes you feel ten, ten feet tall. In other words, Wright says it enhances you. You know, I mean, it, it wouldn't work for you if it didn't make you feel better. And so you join Hitler Youth in the 30s and you get a brown shirt and you get a badge and you, you know, march in parades and you follow the band and what have you. So, you know, you're out on the hookup culture hunt and, uh, and, you, and you find a beautiful person to hook up with and you feel 10 feet tall uh, and uh, you can have an orgasm and it makes you feel really good, changes your brain chemistry or you start uh, using some drug and the same uh, consequence will happen. So this is this is why um, these idols work. They work for us. OK, next slide. It demands sacrifice. Once you become addicted, once you become um, captured by your idol, then you will begin to sacrifice to it. You'll sacrifice time, energy, money, uh, and all kinds of things. Next, it uh, it works in us to develop then a philosophy which justifies it. Hugh Hefner launched Playboy magazine. This is the dark ages now, but see, I'm from the dark ages. And you know what he did after he launched Playboy, and of course it was very successful? Uh, he wrote the Playboy philosophy. And he spent months in the Playboy Mansion, which then was in Chicago, later moved to L.A., writing this philosophy and uh, working with college students at that time and trying to avoid looking at the pictures too much, I uh, read the philosophy. And it was just absolutely B.S. It was, it was amazing. But, but, you know, one of the truths about Hugh Hefner is that his dad was a pastor in the Middle West. So he was growing up in this what for him was a very kind of controlled and restrictive uh, religious environment. And he rebelled against that, launched Playboy magazine, but he had to develop a philosophy to justify what he was doing. And if you go through the various uh, kind of themes of addiction, you can find uh, that 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 becomes necessary. And uh, our whole drug culture today, which is huge, marijuana is the second largest cash crop in California. No wonder we're legalizing it. And you want to know why? Bottom line, this little footnote, just for your information, because if we don't legalize it, it's not taxable. Once we legalize it, we can tax it. And let me tell you, the government is hungry for tax revenue. Okay, next slide. Uh, that's somebody, that could have made somebody mad in here. Anyway, finally, Tom Wright says, that if you stay in this addiction, it will kill you. <laughs> if not, no problem. Somebody threw that in there. I didn't, put, I didn't send this down here, but uh, 
Yeah, if you're, well, if it, well, actually, if it does kill you, no problem, because you're dead, right? But that's a problem, believe it or not. Death is not the end. It's, it's entry into another whole reality. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> somebody has a sense of humor here. Anyway, so, uh, ultimately, you know, whatever it is, your idol will kill you. In other words, you will sacrifice to it. It will control you and... Uh, it will it will it will kill you spiritually and it will kill you more than just spiritually, depending on what happens. So um, Elijah is on, uh, you know, is confronting this king, King Ahab. And here's here's the setting for that. God tells Elijah that he is to bring a word of judgment upon Israel And the word of judgment is, it's not going to rain, and there's not going to be rain or dew for years until Elijah speaks the word which will release Israel from this judgment. And then it happens. And there's the consequence of no rain, no dew. There's famine. People are starving. The the land is just under, you know, under this horrible... Um, oppression, if you will, and uh, the king, King Ahab, uh, is the object of this judgment. He's married this woman, Jezebel, and Jezebel is a pagan. She worships the Baals, and she's drawn her husband into that. And so now Israel, rather than worshiping the one true living God alone, Israel is involved in idolatry. And the Baals are fertility gods. And what would, could be more fun than having a fertility god to worship? Um, you know, I mean, you have temple prostitutes. Uh, you go through the sex act as a part of your worship. You know, I mean, somebody's going to get the idea in our culture, and it's going to you know, probably re- reappear in some way or another. But, um, but anyway, the, the, um, uh, the corruption of the of the worship of the living God has taken place and, and people are worshiping these fertility gods to make the land fertile, to guarantee that the crops are going to be good and what have you. And so the living God sends Elijah with this word, no rain, no dew, until God releases them from this. In other words, it's really the question, who's in charge here? And the answer is, the living God is in charge, not the fertility cult's uh, which you are employing to somehow guarantee good crops and to guarantee your future. And so the Babylon is joined, and this uh, drought goes on year after year. And Elijah then goes through some amazing adventures as he's kind of, you know, uh, being pursued by the king Ahab, and, and, and his life is in danger because he is the one who is controlling in, in God's name. He's controlling uh, the, the, uh, uh, the environment, if you will, the famine and the starvation that's going on. And so finally Ahab runs the king, runs him down, and they have this confrontation. And, uh, and, and here's what Elijah tells him, and God has told Elijah to do this. Let's go up on Mount Carmel, this mountain that sits kind of overlooking the Mediterranean, and we will have, have it out there. So bring Israel, bring the nation there, and bring your prophets of Baal there, and we will see who is really God. 
So uh, here's the deal. We'll set up a sacrifice for the prophets of Baal. And, uh, and then if their god, Baal, comes and accepts the sacrifice by burning it up, uh, and if fire comes and burns up this sacrifice, then we'll know that that god is the god who's in charge of, of the land and our environment and the weather and all that. However, if the living God, which, uh, which uh, he represents, which uh, uh, Elijah represents, if the living God pours his fire down on a similar sacrifice, then this will prove that he, he, he is in charge. And so the nation gathers, 450 prophets of Baal are there, and they get to start the trial. So they slaughter this bull. They build a fire place to put the bull on. And they then begin to pray and dance around and call out to their God, to Baal, to come and consume the sacrifice and prove that he is God. And nothing happens. And they do this all day and up to the early evening and they're lashing themselves, and they're dancing around. 450. It would be maybe, you know, twice the number of people in this room. And, and, and Elijah is standing there watching this going on, and he's mocking uh, their God. Maybe your God's busy. Maybe he's gone on a vacation. Maybe he's, uh, actually, this is literally in the Hebrew, maybe he's turned aside because he has to relieve himself. Uh, this doesn't quite make it into our translations. But uh, Elijah is being really, you know, really a jerk to, to these prophets. And he's just mocking them. And they're more and more in a frenzy. And they cut themselves. And they're bleeding. And they're crying out. And there's just silence. So at the end of the day, then, exhausted, uh, their opportunity is over. And Elijah then comes and creates, uh, again, a, an altar. He restores the altar uh, of Israel. He puts wood there. He slaughters the bull. The bull is then put on the, the, uh, the wood. And he commands uh, someone to get some water and douse this offering three times just to make sure that it's in the up and up. There's no secret uh, fire that he's smuggled in to create uh, a, a, a bogus miracle. And so here's this uh, altar, it's dripping wet, and then Elijah prays, and he prays and asks God to come now and accept this sacrifice and consume it, and the fire falls from heaven, burns up the uh, animal parts that are on the wood, burns up the wood, burns up the stones, and licks up the water, and, and, and Israel is standing there watching this, and they then fall on their faces and cry out that this God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the true and living God. And uh, they, they uh, acknowledge him and worship him because the fire has fallen from heaven. And they renounce their idols accordingly. Uh, after this dramatic event on Mount Carmel then, um, Elijah is alone. He has his servant with him and he bows down looking out over the Mediterranean, and he sends his servant seven times to see if there's any uh, rain coming. 
And on the seventh time, he goes out to look. He says, I see a cloud the size of a hand, a man's hand over the ocean. And then it, it grows and grows and grows. And this huge storm breaks across the land. Thunder and lightning and the rain is falling and what have you. And that's really the, the end of the story. In other words, God accepts the sacrifice and sends the rain. And the judgment has been lifted. And the land now has returned to uh, worshiping the one true living God. Now, the question is for us today, what are our idols? And uh, where is the object of our worship? And if Gerald May is right, and I believe he is, that we're all addicts in every sense of the word, any addiction that's operating in my life or in your life becomes an idol. And, uh, and, and we can feel ten feet tall, but later we're going to be trapped and controlled by that. And so we need to uh, go to Mount Carmel with Elijah and join God's people in renouncing the idols in our lives and giving our life to the one true living God. Well, you might say, well, Don, how do, we, how do I do that? And the answer is found in another mountain. It's called Calvary. The Old Testament points forward to the New Testament. There's another sacrifice that's been made Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, stepped into our history and sacrificed himself on the cross to lift God's judgment, which in the Old Testament was this famine on the land, to lift God's judgment from us, to take it upon himself, and to purchase the price of our having a relationship with God, of moving beyond the idols and the addictions and the the control of our lives, by some substance or process or person into a relationship with a living God where he sets us free from that, forgives us, and then gives us a living relationship with himself. That's exactly why Jesus came, and on that mountain is the answer to uh, what happened on Mount Carmel so long ago. We have to come to that mountain, and there we'll receive a new life. When Jesus hung on the cross, there were two groups of people there. There was a crowd that uh, had yelled when he was being tried before the Roman authorities, crucify him, crucify him. There was a crowd that was really happy to see Jesus out of their lives and out of their history and nailed up there. That That was the big crowd of people. But at the same time at the cross, there was a small group. His mother Mary, one of his disciples John, some other women, and they were there at the cross not to mock Jesus, not to curse Jesus, not to maintain uh, their separation from him, but this little group was there to kneel and pray. And as one of the thieves who was dying beside him Uh, said to Jesus, he cried out to him and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to this dying man, today you'll be with me.
And there were two groups of people there. There was the crowd that said, stay on the cross and stay out of our lives. And there was the small group that said, echoing uh, what this dying thief prayed, Lord, remember me. You're in one group or the other. And I'm in one group or the other. Either we're basically saying, Lord, stay out of my life and stay on the cross. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to serve the idols. I'm going to uh, uh, just uh, live for myself. Or I've come to the cross to kneel and pray and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And there's no fence to sit on because there's no fence. Either you've come to the cross to kneel and pray and receive God's love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His life, which breaks through and brings the living God into your life, or you've come to simply say, stay on the cross and stay out of my life. No fence to sit on, no fence. You're in one group or the other. So this is the question. It's the question that Israel had to answer on Mount Carmel. It's the question that we have to answer today. And that is, um, where are we? Who are we? Who do we belong to? Who do we worship? What gives meaning and uh, purpose for your life and for my life? Are they the idols that will disappoint us and finally kill us? Or is it the living God who's come to call us into a relationship with himself? And you might say, well, how can I know that? And the answer is simply by coming to the cross as Israel came to Mount Carmel to see the living God intervene and consume the sacrifice. So the living God comes to us in his son with a sacrifice to set us free, to forgive us, and to restore us into a relationship with himself. And that's the choice that you have to make and that I have to make. No fence to sit on because there is no fence. So this is the question. Choose you this day whom you will serve. If the Lord Jesus Christ be God, then follow him. And if not, then stay on the path you're on. But you have to make a decision. I want to invite you today. To say to Jesus, yes. Lord, remember me. And what Jesus prays from the cross, God answers. This is his prayer. Father, forgive them. Forgiveness is found in the mercy of God given to us in Jesus Christ. When we open our heart to him, he forgives us for the past. He enters into our lives by his spirit 
And we are then set free to belong to him and to really live with the living God in this world and to be a part of what God is doing in this world. So why don't we just pray for a moment, okay, and just uh, ask the Lord to make this real to all of us. Father, we thank you for Mount Carmel. Thank you for the fire that fell on that sacrifice. Thank you for accepting that sacrifice as Elijah prayed. But we thank you more than that today, Father, for accepting the sacrifice of your son on another mountain on our behalf. And even if we don't understand this, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that will make this real. We need to be cleansed. We need to be set free. We need to know you. We need to come to life in you. And we pray by your spirit, Lord, that you would just make this real to us. Forgive us for following the bales, the fertility cults of our world. Set us free, Lord, from the bondages that we are in and that we have been in. Give us the assurance that you forgive us and welcome us into your heart and into your kingdom. Make this real to us, we pray. Let me ask you the question then, as we just continue to kind of wait before the Lord. Which group are you in? Are you in the group that says, Jesus, stay on the cross and stay out of my life? Or are you in the group that has come to the cross to kneel and pray, Lord, remember me? Have you prayed that prayer? Would you like to pray that prayer? Do you want to be set free from the compulsiveness of this life? And have a relationship with the living God where he will establish your identity in himself and give you a destiny now and forever. Well, you might say, well, Don, how how can that really happen? Look, you can go through life with a a clenched fist trying to hang on to everything. Or you can open your hand. And here's the promise that if you open your hand to Jesus, who not only died for you, but is the risen Lord, he's the living Lord. If you open your hand to him, he will take it and he will fill it with himself. Well, what's what's the secret to that? It's it's called prayer and prayer is just talking to Jesus like you would talk to anybody in this room. Just saying, Lord, I understand enough to know that I need you. Forgive me. I come to the place where you sacrificed yourself for me. And I bow before you. 
come into my life. Make this real to me. Unite me to yourself. And unite me to your people. I want to give you an opportunity physically to respond this morning. If this is your prayer. And if today you're leaving that group that says, stay out of my life and stay on the cross, and you're joining those who say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, uh, let me just invite you to stand where you are, and then we're going to have a prayer with you to seal this so that you know from this day forward that you belong to Jesus and he belongs to you. God bless you. Anybody else want to say yes and stand? That, yeah, God bless you too, brother. Like, standing isn't magical. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's like a sacramental act. It's like an outward sign of inward grace. It's like saying to, to the Lord, here I am. <laughs> I don't understand it all. But I need to be set free. I say goodbye to the idols and hello to Jesus. Now make this real, Lord. Yes, God bless you. Others who just need to do that today. Right on. God bless you. We're not going to drag this out. But uh, for those of you who are standing, yes, God bless you, brother. Let me just invite you to come on down here to the front. And, and we're going to have some of our leaders, our elders and, and uh, leaders to come and join us. And, and just we're going to just pray together. And I want to lead you in a spoken prayer. Uh, we'll pray it all together. And I'll just lead you just phrase by phrase. And then we'll have a chance to have some other folks uh, just uh, greet you and welcome you. What's your name? Monique. Glad to meet you, Monique. God bless you. Thanks for standing here. Yeah. Right on. Well, for those of you who have uh, who, who've come, uh, who stood and come, let me just lead us all just in uh, phrase by phrase and in a, in a prayer, okay? And I just uh, would like you to pray this and echo it after me. And for those, uh, most of you who have prayed this prayer along the way, uh, feel free to pray it again, okay? Why don't we all stand? Shall we do that? And just feel free to... Uh, to pray along and just kind of saying, okay, here I am, Lord, once again, all right? So, um, Father, I come to you. Father, I come to you. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. I open my heart to you. I open my heart to you. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. Please come into my life. Please come into my life. Forgive my sins. Forgive my sins. 
Give me the assurance by your Spirit that I belong to you. Unite me to your people. Thank you, Jesus. My life is yours. You are my life. I renounce the idols. Set me free to live in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.